Good morning, Chippewa Valley Church. Uh, it's so good to be here. I feel a little bit emotional um, because that song is uh, one of my favorite songs, and it was sang at my grandfather's funeral. Um, but I feel so blessed to be here, and I just feel so grateful that the campus ministry has so much talent, and uh, I didn't have to do all that stuff. They just made it happen. And I'm so grateful that we can come together and worship God this morning. If you could turn your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. It's a small one, so it could be hard to find. Uh, it's only a few pages long. Um, but this week we are continuing a series on knowing God. And we've been doing that for the whole year. And we're going through the entire Old Testament. And last week Joel spoke about knowing God's encouragement. God is the God of all comfort and encouragement, and that is a blessing to us. Uh, and I was, I was uh, thinking about just my own life and how much encouragement I need, and it's a lot, and uh, I'm grateful that God provides everything that I need. Uh, but Joel was, was using the book of Ezra and Nehemiah to talk about Zerubbabel, the leader of the Israelites who uh, had gone, they had been cast out of their homeland. And they had returned to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and Zerubbabel needed a lot of encouragement. So we've been going through the story of the Bible chronologically, and instead of following that pattern, I want to take a step back today, because in so doing, we've skipped over a lot of the prophets, uh, because it's harder to do. They don't necessarily tell a story all the time, uh, chronologically. But we're going to look in Habakkuk, which takes place prior to them being cast out and exiled to Babylon. Before we jump in, I would like to pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this morning and for everyone here, and I thank you that, that you have just blessed us so abundantly. I pray that you would be with me as I preach your word, that I can preach with the power of your spirit, and I pray that those who are here can be blessed through what I say in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Habakkuk is one of my favorite books, partly because I receive so much encouragement from it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different book uh, because it's so small. It takes about 10 minutes, if you were to listen to it in audio, to, to hear the whole thing. And it's only like three pages. And it's different because it isn't addressed to the people of Israel at all. It's just Habakkuk speaking with God. And that's all it is. It's just a recording of what they said back and forth. And it starts out, and this is why I love it so much, it starts out with some complaining. Uh, I have a problem. And I've been corrected many times in my life because I complain too much. And Habakkuk clearly has the same problem. We're kindred spirits. He complains too much. And so the book starts, my wife just said, amen. The book starts out with two complaints that Habakkuk has and two responses from the Lord. And what we're going to see is how Habakkuk, he progresses in his faith from complaining to rejoicing. And there's a key turning point in chapter 2, and we're not going to go there just yet, but in chapter 2, where God says, the righteous shall live by their faith. And I believe that phrase made Habakkuk change his heart. Okay, and it's changed my heart in a great way. And so I believe that we can only know God through the exercise of faith. And by faith, I don't mean there's no evidence or there's no reasons to believe in God, but that we trust Him and that we trust what he's going to do. And I believe that we have a spiritual sort of eyes and spiritual ears, and it's impossible to see God if we keep our eyes fixed on this world. 
Spiritually, I mean. So let's read Habakkuk's first complaint. In chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife, and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. So Habakkuk starts out asking God, How long am I going to call to you for help and you do nothing? All right, I've felt that way so many times in my life. And it always comes out that I'm the one in the wrong. But you feel that sometimes, right? God, I pray every day for this, and it doesn't come. I pray every day that you would do this, and you don't do it. And what Habakkuk is seeing around him is evil. There's injustice. People do not obey the word of the Lord, and they treat others horribly. And Habakkuk is saying, Lord, look at all this violence. Aren't you going to save us from the violence? And he's not speaking about some wicked, you know, people like these term pagan nation. He's talking about the chosen people of God, just completely disobeying his word and therefore doing violence to others. And he's saying, how come there's no justice for this situation? And so that's, that's where he's at. And I've, I spend a lot of time, obviously, talking to people on campus about God and the Bible. And I hear this all the time. The Bible is irrelevant. It's archaic. Oh, don't you realize how old that book is? Aren't you just so unmodern for reading it? Right? People think you're just an idiot. And not everybody does that, but there's many. I've heard this a lot. It's a book written by a bunch of goat herders 2,000 years ago. Why do you care what it says? And I'm like, well, most of them weren't goat herders, but there were a few. <laughs> and what's wrong with goat herders? <laughs> right? But people have these criticisms, and they claim that it's irrelevant, that it has no bearing on today. And yet, how often is the first criticism of God out of people's mouths? Why is there so much injustice? And we see the exact same thing in the Bible, repeatedly, that people are wondering about this. And so the Bible is not irrelevant or archaic or just written by a bunch of goat herders. It's actually brilliant and deep, and it speaks to our souls in a way that I have read a lot of books, and no book has ever done that the way the Bible does. Amen. So Habakkuk is seeing the same problems that we see today, injustice and evil. You know, just a few weeks ago, we, uh, we remembered 9-11. That's actually my mother's birthday. And I remember it. I was only eight years old. And from that one act of evil has spawned probably millions of deaths. Millions of people have died in the Middle East and other places because it created a cycle of vengeance. This is what goes on in our world. And we see it and we go, God, why do you allow this to happen? Or maybe we experience some hurt in our own lives. Right? My grandfather passing away was difficult for me. I was very close to him. And I could say to God, why would you allow this to happen? And so we all experience these things, whether on a grand scale or just in our personal day-to-day lives. And so the Bible speaks to this. And God gives him an answer that he did not expect. Look in verse 5. This is, the, this is the Lord responding to Habakkuk. And he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. 
For I am doing something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. So God says, listen, I'm going to do something that you're not even going to believe is going to happen. And then he says, and this is not what I expected after reading that verse. He says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. So God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Babylon was in, it's, it's somewhere in modern-day Iraq. It's no longer an important city at all. But at this time, Babylon was the most powerful city in the world. And the Babylonians were conquering everyone around them. And they weren't nice about it either. They were brutal. They were ruthless. And they took what they wanted. And God says, you wouldn't believe it, but I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring about justice in Judah. I'm going to use these evil people to judge my people. It's not something that you would expect. You might expect God to say, you're right, you're not going to believe it, but I'm going to snatch all those people and they're just going to vanish. And only the righteous will be left. No, God says, I'm going to use evil to promote good. And Habakkuk, in verse 12, he doesn't like this answer either. He's like, this is ridiculous, and I've got something to say, Lord. So he starts out with maybe a little bit of, uh, of groveling before he gets into his complaint in verse 12. He says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So far, so good, right? God, you've ordained it. This is, you know, it sounds like he's on board. And then all of a sudden he goes to this. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea. Like sea creatures that have no ruler, the wicked foal pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net forever, destroying nations without mercy? So Habakkuk starts out, God, you're too pure to look on evil. So why do you do that? <laughs> it's like uh, he's all over the map right now. And he, said, he describes, he says, why do you let those who are evil take over those who are more righteous than them? And I think he's talking about Judah, which he was just saying, they're so evil. And he's saying, but the Babylonians are worse. So why are you letting them do this? And the Babylonians have conquered many peoples, right? And it's like a fisherman pulling them up in his net. And then he, you know, he enjoys the fish. And then he sacrifices, he worships his own net, which was their military. They worshiped the military. And he says, are you going to let them do this forever? Because they're in sin. Worshiping your own military is wrong. Being a law unto yourself is wrong. And then he says in chapter 2, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. 
Okay, I love this part because I totally relate. He says, I'm going to stand and I'm just not going to move until God gives me another response because I don't like what you just said. And then he says, and I'm going to see what answer I can give when he rebukes me. (laughs) So I don't know if you've ever been in an argument. I do this constantly. And instead of actually listening, what you do is you think about your answer to your assumptions about what they're going to say. I'm very good at this. And I could just create all these scenarios in my mind. And I'll do this an hour before the argument even happens. Okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? And Ivy is laughing because I do it to her all the time. It's like, okay, Ivy, I hear you saying that, but I already had a response 20 minutes ago. Right? So I didn't actually hear anything you just said. I just heard all my genius coming out. It's not working. (laughs) And that's where Habakkuk is at. He's in this place where he's like, all right, Lord, you tell me, I'll respond. I've got a response ready. I'm loaded up. And the Lord replies again. See how gracious God is. God is not beholden to us, right? God is not required to answer my prayers. And yet he does. And the same for Habakkuk, because he's gracious. There's no reason that we should be able to question him, but we can, because of his love, right? And so it says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a messenger may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. So here God says, I want you to write this down, Habakkuk, and I want you to give it to a messenger so he can go tell everyone that the end will come. And then he says, he is puffed up. And I don't know who he is. It might be Habakkuk. Hey, buddy, you're puffed up. Who do you think you are? But the righteous shall live by his faith. And then God goes on to describe the evil practices, not only of Babylon, but of every nation since. Oppressing the poor, you know, enslaving people, violence, aggression, drunken and irresponsible leaders who do not care about their people. God describes all that and he says, I will put an end to this. You wait for it. Even if it feels like it's taking way too long, it's coming. And we, of course, know that it's coming when Jesus returns. We actually have the benefit of knowing sort of a time frame without knowing exactly when. We know how that will come about through the the kingship of Jesus. But Habakkuk didn't necessarily know that. But God tells him anyways, you need to live by your faith that I will bring about justice. Right? And so this is, this is also an idea that I hear mocked in academia and just in our culture, and increasingly so. The idea that we should live by faith. People say, Faith is just believing in something that you don't have any evidence for. Or faith is believing in something that that you can't see, but I only believe in what I can see, which is not true. Nobody only believes in what they can see. Uh, How many people read the news and believe what they just read? They didn't see it. But I have so many people on campus tell me, Grayson, I don't believe in that because I never saw it. And I'm like, well, did you see me eat breakfast yesterday? Well, do you believe that I ate breakfast? Yeah, okay, so that's not true. You believe a lot of things you don't see. And so people say, you know, I only believe what I see. But God is saying, there is a spiritual reality that is beyond this world. 
that you cannot see. There, I mean, there's dimensions that are a part of our physical world that we can't see anyways. But God is saying there's something even beyond that, even beyond the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension that we can't see. There's a spiritual reality. And it's not something that we can see with our eyes or hear with our ears. It's not something that just manifests to us in our everyday experience. But it is something that we can see with spiritual eyes and hear with spiritual ears. If you look in Isaiah chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. It should be on the screen. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, it says this. And Jesus repeats this in the New Testament numerous times. Why? Because it's just the state that we find ourselves in. So God gives Isaiah this mission in, in Isaiah in verse 9, uh, he receives this mission. God says, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So here God says, I want you to tell them that you cannot hear, see, or understand because of the condition of your heart. Habakkuk is in a place where he is not understanding what God is saying to him because he's too busy complaining. He's too busy preparing his response. There was a time in my life when I lived in unbelief, when I was spiritually hardened. In Ephesians chapter 4, he describes how people's hearts become callous through sin. And I was living in all sorts of sin, and therefore I couldn't see God. I couldn't hear God. I would pray, and nothing would happen, because I couldn't hear. In sin and impurity, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Impurity of all sorts blinds us to the reality of God. We become incapable. No matter how hard we try, we will not see Him. And so my heart was gradually opened because I began to seek Him. I began to say, okay, I can't see you, but I know you're there. I'm going to find. And I started to study God's Word. And I started to pray, God, open the eyes of my heart, which is what Paul said his prayer was for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1. That the eyes of their heart may be opened. And so I had this willing heart, and I started to exercise my spiritual organs, so to speak. And I began to be able to see and hear the goodness of God in the Word and in prayer and in other people and in the circumstances of life. And now when I look at a tree, I can't help but think God made that. But before all I thought was, well, that tree's in my way or whatever. However it annoyed me, that's what I thought of. You know, C.S. Lewis, he's a famous Christian author. He was, he was raised in an Anglican church, but when he was in his teens, he became an atheist. And he doesn't, I don't know if he necessarily knows why, but that's, it was like, oh, it's logical. I should be an atheist. Now, one of the reasons that he gave was, if this world was made by God, why is it so messed up? Does that sound familiar? That's what everybody says. C.S. Lewis became an atheist. But through time, conversations with friends, and a lot of the work of God on his heart, he ended up completely flipping that. Now he's one of the most famous Christian authors to ever live. And he said this when he was in his 30s. He said, you must picture me alone in that room. He was an Oxford professor, okay? You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen in College of Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted 
even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> the one who I did not want to meet. I think we've all been there. Maybe not, but I think so. We've been in a place where we have this constant encroaching presence of God in our lives, and we just don't want it. And maybe that's because of sin, right? Sin will separate you from God in your heart, and you won't want anything to do with Him. It's exactly like the darkness is driven away by the light, and it can't approach. Maybe it's because of impurity. Maybe the problems of this world. And by impurity, I mean anything that sticks to your heart in such a way that you just can't see beyond what's right in front of you. Maybe that is drawing you away from God. Right? We look at the problems that we have in our lives, and it just becomes so much bigger than it needs to be, and suddenly there's no God there because we blocked Him out. Or maybe you just need to exercise your spiritual organs and allow God to work on your heart so that your senses increase. And eventually, maybe you'll be able to hear a pin drop in a sandstorm. And it won't matter what your circumstances are. You'll know that God is there. So Habakkuk is complaining. God responds to him. And then Habakkuk, if you go back to Habakkuk. Okay, now I've lost it. There it is. If you go back to Habakkuk, God responds to him. And Habakkuk's attitude completely shifts like that. I think because his faith increased beyond his circumstance. And I want to I point out a couple things from this last chapter, chapter 3 of Habakkuk. First of all, he starts out by just praising God. By just praising God and talking about how great God is. Right? He talks about God coming down and the mountains are just crushed by him. He talks about God shooting arrows at the earth and it creates rivers. And this isn't meant to be taken literally. It's just showing how great God is that if he were to shoot an arrow, the Chippewa River would suddenly be there. How powerful he is. And it shows God's judgment on the wicked. But he says, in wrath, remember mercy. But I want to read in verse 13. In verse 13, this verse is incredible because it speaks about something that Habakkuk could not possibly have known. It says, you came out to deliver your people, to save your Christ, your Messiah. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. Okay, so if you know the story of the crucifixion, you recall that Jesus was stripped of his clothing. And Habakkuk is saying, no, that happened to the leader of the land of wickedness. Jesus was pierced with a spear. And Habakkuk is saying, the leader of evil, that is Satan and all his evil forces in the spiritual realms, was actually the one pierced by the spear. Now Habakkuk has no idea the picture he's drawing here. He's just talking about God saving his people from the wicked one. And yet somehow it all correlates directly to what happened to Jesus. Somehow God reversed the picture where it looked like Jesus was defeated, when in fact Satan was the one being defeated. 
And I only share that because there are so many things like this in the Old Testament that it blows my mind. I had, a, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine. We've been friends for years. He's a devout Jew. Uh, he's, he was in the Israeli paratroopers. He's very Jewish. <laughs> and he loves the na- nation of Israel. And we talk about these sorts of things. And to be frank, and I don't mean, he's a very intelligent guy, but there's never really a good answer. How is it that Jesus did this, but you didn't even anticipate that this was possible? There's never a good answer. There are so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The Bible is trustworthy. Yep. Amen. Okay, so Habakkuk talks about that. And then he talks about his own state. In verse 16, I heard, I heard God, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound, and decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. He hears the voice of God, and it really humbles him incredibly. And I've had that experience. You suddenly realize that you are not better than God, and you do not have the right to question him. And that's what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6, which we just read. He said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. Right? It's like this humility suddenly hits you like a ton of bricks, and you have to bow. But this doesn't mean that he's feeling terrible. Matter of fact, in verse 17, he has this expression of joy that is one of the greatest expressions of joy in the whole Bible. He says, Though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vine, the olive produce fail. In the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go upon the heights. So he says, even if everything goes wrong, even if there's a famine and everybody is starving to death, I will rejoice in my God. Think about where he started. God, what's your deal? To God, whatever you do is good and just, and I trust in you. There was a complete transformation. And what happened was that he started to exercise those spiritual organs. He refused to give up. God responded to him in love, and he began to live by his faith. His desires... His own thoughts were no longer puffed up in his head. And I believe that this joy, it's not always present, but it's the inevitable result of faith in God. You know, sometimes we think that being a Christian or believing in God is dull and dreary. But I tell you what, I've done both, and I am way happier than I was prior to being a Christian. And that's not always the case. But... There's an enduring joy that comes about from my faith that God will bring justice and that I can wait for his salvation. Some of you may have come into a place where you feel like your heart is hardened and you have maybe there's impurity in your life or sin. I implore you to repent. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. And that's what he's doing right now. He's knocking. If you repent, suddenly... This joy will come upon you. Times of refreshing will come from the Lord. This is what the Bible says. And there will no longer be that hardness of heart. Some of you maybe have never really come out of that place. Maybe you weren't taught. 
how to seek God. Maybe you simply haven't tried. The reality is that he's there. God is near. He's orchestrated the conditions of our life so that perhaps we could reach out for him and find him. So I implore you to, to seek him. And maybe some of you feel like you're in a good place. I've been there. Sometimes I feel that way. And uh, sometimes I'm humbled that maybe I'm not in such a good place. But if you feel that way, then go out and help others to find God and to be close to him and share the blessing that you have. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the book of Habakkuk. It has transformed my life. I pray that each one of us here can live by our faith. And if we have doubts or struggles or questions, that is normal. It's all over the Bible. But Lord, that we could seek out answers from you, from your word, and just from those around us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.